Philippians chapter 4, and we're starting in verse 2. I want to start this morning with two words that are, I would say, life-changing or fundamental to all of our lives. They're, they're words that are on the tips of our tongues, two words very precious to us, two words that pierce the ears of all of our listeners and let them know our deepest desires. It's the words, two words, I need. I need. Four letters, frequently on the tips of our tongues, I need. Recently, I've frequently added the word coffee after the words I need. The question is, is, is coffee a need or is it a want? There's a difference. Uh, what, what I need for my survival and well-being are things like water and sleep. I should probably get more of those in my life. I don't need coffee. I want coffee, but technically speaking, I do not need coffee. This distinction between needs and wants is something that uh, Christian counselor and author Ed Welch talks about in one of his books. It's his book, this book is called When People Are Big and God is Small. And in this book, he, he makes the point that often we exalt our wants to the place or category of needs. So, and, we, and he talks about how we do this with lots of things, right? We, I need air conditioning. I need a better job. I need sex. I need approval from others. I need a smaller waistline. I need fill in the blank. The result, he claims, of this erroneous exaltation of putting our needs, sorry, putting our wants in the place of needs, claiming that our wants are needs, this exaltation of our wants this, the net result of that can be discontentment. Because when we think about something as a need, we, we think of it as necessary. It's, we almost think of it as something that's deserved, something that is owed to me, something without which I will not survive. To up the ante, when our so-called needs aren't being met, it becomes really easy in those moments to claim, whether explicitly or implicitly, that God is not taking care of us. He's not good. He's not meeting my needs. Contrary to this, our text before us this morning claims that God takes care of his people. God takes care of his people's needs, our, our real needs. God takes care of his people. And, and, and we're going to explore that idea, the, the, the idea that God takes care of his people. We're going to explore it this morning in, in three movements. We're going, to, we're going to explore first what you need. And maybe you didn't even know that you needed it. What you need. Second, how you get it. And third, why you can have it. What you need, how you can get it, and why you can have it. So I'm going to read through our text. And, and our text this morning, I like to think of it like a cake. On a cake, there is the body of the cake, and usually you put icing on a cake. Liz Sorgenfrey knows. That's right, Liz. I see you. 
You can correct me afterward if I'm wrong. Put icing on the cake, and sometimes you put sprinkles on the cake. And so the way that we're going to, I'm going to read through our text, but, but the, the, the whole first point, when we get to what we need, we're going to see that, that what we need is sprinkled throughout the text. It's like the, sprink, it's the sprinkles and the icing on the cake. So first we're going to eat the icing and the sprinkles, and then we're going to go back through the text sequentially and eat our cake in two big chunks, okay? So we're going to read through the whole chapter 4, actually from verse 2 to the end. Paul says this, I entreat Euodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, Think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned to me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I, I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound in any and every circumstance. I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Yet, it was kind of you to share in my trouble. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering and sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. That is God's word. So we're going to eat the icing and the sprinkles first. Something that our text makes really clear is that uh, as Paul wrote this letter, the, the Philippians were facing all sorts of adverse uh, and hard circumstances. The, the, as we see in, in verse two, verses 2 and 3, uh, one of the issues that was going on in this church in Philippi was that of disunity. And, and we've seen this in previous weeks, if you've been with us. Um, specifically here, Paul calls out these two women who seem to be, uh, to some degree, leaders in the church. They labored alongside of Paul and the gospel. But there's a problem. There's this unity. They're fighting with each other. So there's this adverse, hard circumstance in their church. People are 
getting nasty with it. Like, they're just, they're, they have bad attitudes. They're fighting with each other. You can see in verses 6 and 7 that Paul talks about anxiety. And if we know anything about the Philippian situation, uh, the, the Philippians have, like, a lot of legit stuff to be scared about, to be anxious about. Not only are their leaders fighting and causing disunity, but as the rest of the letter reveals, uh, they're facing physical and social persecution for the gospel, probably being flogged and thrown in prison. And, as Paul talks about in chapter 3, they're facing threats of false teaching. There's guys walking around saying basically what you Philippians believe is fake news. And we have the real thing. Their circumstances are not good. And for most of us today, as I think of those of you who I know, as I look at my own life, um, and even those of you who I don't know, I think for most of us, we could look at something in our life this morning and say, yeah, my circumstances are not good. I don't have what I need. Maybe the most present example that affects all of us this morning um, is the reality that if, if you claim to be a Christian today, if you follow Jesus, um, there is the reality that our values and our interests as Christians are increasingly in conflict with those of our society at large. The, the cost of being a Christian in America is increasing. And so we might tend to think, well, if this person could just be president, or if this person wasn't president, or if we could just get rid of these particular flags, or if I could just live in this other place, or if I could whatever. If God would just change my set of circumstances, well then, like, my needs would be met. But in verses 10 and 13, when Paul gets to talking about himself, Paul blows this notion right out of the water. Paul was also not in great circumstances. We see in this letter, he's in prison writing this letter. He is suffering for the gospel. And yet he makes clear in verses 10 through 13 that his need, the, the solution to his needs, the, the, the secret to his contentment, it's not found in being freed from prison. It's not in his abounding and having plenty of food on the table. It's not even found in the financial gift that the Philippians have sent him. Paul's contentment, rather, is found in reliance. What does he say in verse 13? I can do all things through him who strengthens me. His the source of his contentment, the strength for his peace, is found in Jesus. It's found in reliance upon the one who strengthens him. The, the secret to our contentment is not found in our circumstances changing. It's found, according to Paul, it's found in God. And this God, in verse 9, we see Paul says is the God of peace. Let's put it differently. Um, that which Paul claims the Philippians need, what they most desperately need in the midst of their adverse circumstances, is not 
no more persecution or no more false teachers or no more threats. Paul claims what they need is God and his peace. So you see in verses 2 and 3, they need peace in their relationships. You see in verse 7, they need God's peace in their hearts and minds. You see in verse 9, they need God's peaceful presence with them. Brothers and sisters, what we need more of in the midst of life's circumstances, good or bad, is not that they change. What we need is God's peace. And God's peace, right? So when Paul brings up this idea of peace in our text, it doesn't just refer to some like state of internal psychological well-being and happiness. What this ultimately refers to is and speaks of is God's work of restoration and salvation. That which was lost when the first humans, Adam and Eve, sinned against God and rebelled against him, they lost peace. There was no more peace in the garden. The peace between God and his people was broken. The peace between man and woman was broken. The peace between humans and the created order was broken. And you see the effects of that right away in Genesis chapter 4. Where Adam and Eve have two kids and one of them kills the other one. That is not peace. Peace was lost. And what this peace refers to that Paul is talking about ultimately is God's restoration of peace. It is his redemptive work. It's God bringing sinful humans back into a peaceful relationship with himself. It it points to God's work of renewing us, those who have believed in him, into his image. It points to God's agenda to restore the created order. To, to, to make a new world with no strife, no suffering, no tears. Paul says the Philippians, you know what you need? You need God's peace. And maybe you're here this morning checking out this church thing. Maybe you're here, I see some of you young people, because your parents made you come. Uh... Christians believe that humans are needy and that our greatest need is only met by God himself. That God grants us peace. He grants us the forgiveness of sins. He grants us the hope of heaven. He grants us the the hope of peace here and now in this life to all who come to him. God gives peace and restoration to all those who admit their need for peace their need for salvation, their need for restoration, who come to him admitting that and then trust in him to give them that. So we in the Philippians this morning, we may, we may think uh, that we need a lot of things, right? But what our text reminds us of is the fact that what God claims that we need is his peace. We need God's peace. So the question becomes, so how do we get it? Like, how do I experience God's peace right here, right now, today, in the midst of my circumstances in 2023 in Puyallup, Washington? How do I experience God's peace in my marriage, in my relationships, in my anxieties, in the midst of my circumstances? 
How do I get it? If that's what you are claiming I need, how do I get it? In verses 2 through 9, so now we're going to start eating our cake, the body of the cake. In verses 2 through 9, what we see here as we read are a bunch, just like Paul's just firing off these practical commands to the Philippians. And what we see is that when, if the Philippians obey these commands, what will happen is they'll experience God's peace. Um, and a good way to summarize these commands, like if, if we were to sum all of them up, we're going to go through them in detail, but the, the common themes in all of these commands are two things. It boils down to two things. It boils down to relying on God and walking in his ways. Relying on God and walking in his ways. So as we go through this, it might seem like, oh man, like there's a ton of stuff here. And there is, but it's actually really simple. Like this is just what being a Christian is. It's relying on God and walking in his ways. And Paul says, if you want to experience God's peace right here, right now, if you want God's peace to fill your life, your relationships, your mind, your heart, then you have to rely on God and walk in his ways. So we see in verses 2 through 5, I'm not going to read it again, but we, as I mentioned before, we saw Euodia and Syntyche, these two women in the church, and they're fighting. There's some sort of disunity. We don't know exactly what the situation was, but they're in disagreement with each other. And so Paul here starts to tell them how they can have relational peace, how they can have peace in their relationships. And so we see that he says basically three things. He says, agree in the Lord. He says, rejoice in the Lord always. And then he says, let your reasonableness, or the word could be said as graciousness, let your graciousness be known to everyone. Another way to put it, agree in the Lord, rejoice in the Lord, and act like the Lord. You want good relationships? You women, these, I'm acting like I'm talking like Paul. Yodi and Syntyche, you want restored relationships with each other? Do this. It's actually really easy to fix your conflict. Make your unity in Jesus greater than your differences. Agree in the Lord. Make Jesus your greatest joy and not winning the argument. Act like Jesus. Be gracious to others and focused on on others instead on yourself. Focus on others instead of yourself. Focus on loving others, being gracious instead of being selfish. The reason that these women were not experiencing peace in their relationship was because they were not relying on God. They were not walking in his ways. And I think that then that question comes to us, right? If we are not experiencing as brothers and sisters peace in our relationships in our church, well, it's probably because we need to start acting like Jesus and specifically being gracious, specifically rejoicing in God. It's really hard to be in a conflict with somebody else if God is your greatest joy, not your own rights and what you think should happen. Or even in our marriages, How many marriages fall apart because 
people aren't acting with grace. It's actually really easy. You know, one of the best things that I heard before I got married, one of the best advices, pieces of advice I got for my marriage was, Ben, or somebody told me two things. said, one, uh, your marriage will only survive. It will only be successful because of God's grace. But the second thing, if you want your marriage to succeed, you need to keep Jesus on the throne of your heart. Or, as Paul would say, rely on God and walk in his ways. As Paul says, you want peace in your relationships, you got to rely on God and you got to walk in his ways. Then look at verses 6 and 7. Paul here gives two more commands. And it basically, he basically says, do not be anxious. And then he says, pray. Do not be anxious and pray. As we already said, there's plenty that the Philippians could have been anxious about. There's plenty that we could be anxious about. Maybe there's plenty this morning that you are anxious about. But Paul claims here that the way to deal with our anxieties, the, the, the way to deal with the things that we could be anxious about is not by talking to our anxieties. It's not by getting into a conversation with those things. It's by getting into a conversation with God. What Paul says here reminds me of um, the words from What a Friend We Have in Jesus. It's a hymn that we sing sometimes. One of the verses says, it says this, Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear. All because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. These words in this song give voice to a common experience, which I think all of us know to some extent. It's, it's the experience of holding on to our anxieties instead of going to the Lord with them. I think for some of us, you know, the, the reason that we hold on to our anxieties is because we like control. We're control freaks. It can feel more comfortable for some of us. It feels more safe for some of us to deal with our anxieties ourselves Because to leave it in God's hands means that it's out of ours. And for some odd reason, we think that that is a scary thing. We think it is scary to put our burdens into God's hands. Because I can't control it anymore. As if we can control it in the first place. Or, for others of us, we're we're doers. We like to get things done. There's no mountain that we think we can't overcome. Something comes our way and we think, I got to start fixing problems. I got to start doing things. I got to start running around. And we start doing and doing and doing. It's like my four-year-old. When he tries to put on a dress shirt and he has to put all the buttons on, he thinks that he can overcome that mountain. But there is no way until he is so overburdened that he starts screaming for help. Some of us were doers. Some of us, the issue is control. Some of us face anxiety and we totally shut down. Get so overwhelmed that we don't know what to do. In our text, I think the question that Paul is asking us is, 
Could it be that if we're not experiencing God's peace in our hearts and minds with regard to the things that we could be anxious about, could it be that it's because we're doing everything except going to him? What our text tells us this morning, brothers and sisters, is that we are allowed to not figure everything out. We are allowed to not try and solve every problem. We are allowed to get on our knees and stop running around. What this text also reminds us of is the fact that God calls us to come to him with our burdens and to rely on him, to rely on his promises. And the promise here in our text, just this is amazing. It says, if, if we go to God with, in prayer and with thanksgiving, verse 7, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. This text does not say if we go to God with the things that we could be anxious about, the things that we're anxious about will get fixed. That is the whole point of our text, that circumstances may not change. They may, they may not. The point is, is that God's heart, God's peace will guard your heart. Though the, circum, though the storm rages outside, the castle is secure. God's task force of peace is standing outside. And, it, and, 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 and the point here is that it, it, it surpasses understanding. Like it doesn't even make sense. How can you have that peace in the midst of that storm? How do we get God's peace? Well, we, we rely on him. We walk in his ways. Verses 8 and 9, Paul gives two more practical commands. He says basically two things. Think and do. Think and do. Or as we've been saying, rely on God and walk in his ways. Think these things and practice these things. That's what Paul says. The, the, the first thing he says, think about things that are commendable. Think about things that are true. Think about things that are lovely. He lists off this whole thing. And, and the, the point is there's a call here for us as Christians to think about things intentionally, to, to utilize our thought life intentionally. It is a call not to be passive with our minds and just let whatever we want to just pass on through. It's a call to think like Jesus. Paul talks this way in chapter 2. He says, in chapter 2, verse 5, he's calling the Philippians to be like Jesus. He says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. And then he proceeds to show them what Jesus is like. It's the same idea here. This is a call to utilize our thought life as Jesus would. What fills my thoughts throughout the day? What do I think about? I think some of it, if you're anything like me, half the day, I like, I don't even, I'm not even conscious what I'm thinking about. Stuff's just going through my mind. Is it complaining thoughts? Is it untrue thoughts? Is it tons of negative self-talk? Is it possible that some of us are not experiencing God's peaceful presence because we are not intentionally setting our minds on what is true 
and good and lovely. And, and it makes sense, right? I mean, the person who's setting their mind consistently and intentionally and actively on the glories of the gospel, the person who is rehearsing the truths of God's love, the, the person who is thanking God in the midst of life's adverse circumstances for his greatness and his glory and his sovereignty and his providence, the person who is thinking on things that are true and lovely, how could that not result in peace? How could peace not exude from your life? I think what we read here would claim that it would do us a lot of good some nights to turn off Netflix and to pray with our spouses or to call a friend and pray and maybe sleep a little less that we might dive into God's word in the morning. To use our thought life intentionally. In addition to this, Paul doesn't just say think, but he says do. He basically says what we saw a few weeks ago in chapter 3. Imitate me as I imitate Jesus. So it's not just to use their thought life and their minds intentionally, but it's also a call to live like Jesus and act like Jesus in self-sacrificing love towards others. And the result in verse 9, Paul says, and the God of peace will be with you. So imagine you're the Philippians and you're in these adverse circumstances and Paul says to you, God, the God of peace will be with you. Is that not what they want? Is that not what they need? We need God's peace. And one of the ways that we see Paul telling, here, telling us here, that one of the ways that God provides for us, one of the ways that God takes care of us in providing his peace to us is by asking us to participate in it in really practical ways. Like the math here is really simple. When you rely on the Prince of Peace and you act like the Prince of Peace, you will experience the Prince's peace. The last question, though, is, well, okay, thanks, Paul. So, like, what sort of guarantee do I have that God will actually give me his peace when I do these things? Why can I know that I'll have it? And this is our last point. And this is where we go to verses 10 through 20. And here, Paul, he starts thanking the Philippians for the gift that they sent him through Epaphroditus. He was, Epaphroditus was, was a co-worker in the gospel, and he was sent by the Philippians to send Paul missionary support. And he brought it to him in jail, and Paul wrote this letter and gave it back to Epaphroditus, and he went back. So Paul ends the letter here, one, just doing some kind of, he's doing some order of business. He's, he's thanking them for this gift that they sent. But he also uses it as an opportunity to show them his example of contentment. And so what we see here is, again, and we talked about this briefly, Paul, where is he? He's in prison. He's suffering for the gospel. He could die. Others are working against him. We see that in chapter 1 to bring him down. Uh, Paul feels the weight of protecting and encouraging his brothers and sisters in Philippi. And, but he can't go be with them. I mean, Paul is not in great circumstances, and the list could keep growing. 
And yet, in the midst of all of that, what we see more than anything else in Paul's letter, especially in verses 10 through 13 here, but throughout this whole letter, is joy. Paul has exuberant joy in the midst of his adverse circumstances. Paul's life is full of contentment in Christ. Paul is standing before the Philippians through this letter as a living, real-life example, a tangible example of the promises of God to give us his peace on display. Paul's a real-life example of the strength and peace that Jesus gives when we rely on him and when we walk in his ways. And I just, I just wonder, when the Philippians got this letter, and they read verses 2 through 9, and they heard all these commands from Paul, and then the promises that God's going to give you peace. If you do these things, God will give you peace. I just wonder if they just went, yeah, easy for you to say, Paul. Try living in my shoes. Try living with my circumstances. Try living with my problems. And then they got to verses 10 through 13, and they're like, oh, yeah. Yeah, Paul's not doing great either. He snaps him back to reality. Paul's like a coach here with his team. Somebody who's played soccer for years and how he's coaching all the kids and saying, well, this is how it goes. This is how you do this. I think that this reminds us of the fact that God's promises are real. Like, God has actually given us each other. Look to your left and look to your right. God has given us each other. Some of you aren't looking. (laughs) Maybe there's nobody to your left. That's why you're not looking. God has given us each other as witnesses of the fact that his promises of peace are real. God's promises are on display in the lives of those around you. I think one encouragement that comes from this is, so then like sit with, hang out with each other. Ask each other, how are you obeying the commands of Christ? How are you dealing with your anxieties? How are you processing these things? I think that's something that will encourage our faith. So remember, we're asking the question, why, how can we know, like why can we know that we can have God's peace? Like what's my guarantee? Well, the first thing here is that we see I mean, Paul's like a real-life example of this, just put on display for the Philippians. But the other reason is found in verse 19. So Paul finishes thanking the Philippians for their gift to him. And then he reminds them of this. He says, And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Notice here, there's a few things. God is rich. His riches are glorious. And they are located in Christ Jesus. And if you skip down to verse 21, who else is located in Christ Jesus? Paul talks about the saints. The fact that they're in Christ Jesus. If you are a follower of Christ today, you are unified with him by faith. You are found in Christ where the riches are. The glorious riches of God are found and located. The point is, and what Paul's getting at, is that God's provision to meet his people's needs, God's provision, the guarantee that he will give you his peace, it's found in the gospel. 
It's found in the fact that you are unified with Christ by faith. God's peace to us is like a check that he signed with the blood of his own son. Paul says this in Romans 8.32, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for, his, for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? If he gave that, how can he not give you everything else? Why can you have God's peace? Because the gospel secures it. The blood of Jesus secures it. There's no taking that back. The the awesome thing, though, here is that, um, as if that wasn't awesome, the awesome thing is that if we go back to our second point, talking about the things that we need to do to experience God's peace here and now, they're relying on God and walking in his ways. I think what this is doing here, when Paul says, reminds them of God's promises, he is going to provide for you. The security of God's provision of peace to us in the gospel acts as a motivator to do the things that bring us peace. If you know that God will give it, how much easier is it to go get it? If God has promised his peace, Paul's basically saying, go get it. Go live in this way. And this means that for us, brothers and sisters, even in the midst of adverse circumstances, even when it feels as though anxieties are taking over, even though it feels like difficulties may not change, even in the midst of relational strife, whether it's in your marriage, in the church, in your relationships, in your family, what this text reminds us of today is that the gospel claims that God is taking care of you as his child. His peace for you is secured by the blood of Christ. And you can know it intimately here and now as you rely on him and as you walk in his ways. And it's no wonder then that Paul closes in verse 20 with praise. He can't help but praise God. He says in verse 20, To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. God's peace, the experience of his peace, the promise of his peace should lead us to praise him. God, we thank you for your promises of peace to us and we rejoice in your goodness to us this morning. Help us to rely on you and to walk in your ways. We pray that in your name. Amen.